once we flip that switch and we decide I am paying attention to me, it can be overwhelming with what you get. But I think that you really need to go the course and know that, you know, you, your body has been talking to you for a really long time, but it's not mad at you. You can catch up and you can honor, you know, the messages that it sends and be able to take care of yourself better than you ever had before. Would you mind explaining a little bit more about the kinds of symptoms that might be associated with having experienced trauma. Sure. Anxiety, constant worry about what is around the corner, flashbacks, obtrusive uh, thoughts, hypervigilance, you know, feeling that you have to constantly be aware of what's happening around you and you have to be prepared for something horrible. Hello everybody, it's wonderful to be with you in the same room, it feels like that anyway. Welcome to Moving Through Menopause. This episode I'm chatting with Melody Murray. Hello Melody, how are you doing today? I'm doing well Philippa, nice to meet you. Thanks so much for coming along, I'm glad you're doing well because you were telling me that you've just moved house and I know that, that can be quite traumatic. Absolutely dramatic because you go into it trying to be really organized at the end. You're like, get in the back. <laughs> well, you know, I'll share with you this. I'm married to a military husband. And so oh, I've done a, lot, done a lot of it. Has to be said that we, we did have assistance to move, but even still, it's quite horrific. It takes a while to adjust to, you know, having everything where it's supposed to be and then moving it to a new space and then having to find a new home for all of those things and trying to feel comfortable, but still living your life in the process. Well, good luck with getting all that sorted as quickly as possible, Melody. So, you know, the reason that you are here, Melody, is because you're a trauma therapist and, and you're a trauma survivor. And it's come to my attention that for those of us traversing menopause, that symptoms can be aggravated by adverse childhood events. Symptoms of PTSD, for instance, can alter our biological processes. And, and so this was something that I wanted to explore because childhood trauma, trauma not even just when you're a child, leaves its scar, doesn't it? And so, you know, I wondered if you would be so kind as to share a little bit about your own story. Absolutely. I grew up in a small town right outside of Houston, Texas. My parents divorced when I was three years old. At that time, I was the youngest of three. And my parents did absolutely everything wrong. Everything wrong. And, you know, we kids were lost in the shuffle of their multiple relationships, addiction, neglect, emotional neglect, and it definitely has left mark. My two older siblings have substance abuse issues and, you know, I have chronic anxiety that has improved dramatically over the years, but it's something that I've had to wrestle with my entire life. And, you know, when you grow up where there is constant chaos, Unfortunately, that feeling, the adrenaline that comes with that becomes so familiar 
that flips a switch inside our minds that you, you start to seek out that familiar energy. And so when you have trauma, your brain gets adjusted to chaos in a way that wreaks havoc on every part of your world. And so there are the physical repercussions of that. And then there's the emotional and the psychological stuff as well. With me personally, you know, I've had a dismissive attachment style for, for most of my you know, life and can change your attachment style, but mine was very dismissive. And a dis dismissive attachment style, what that means is whenever I was growing up, I couldn't count on my caregivers. I couldn't count on them to be consistently protecting me and caring for me. And so that wired my brain to assume that that's how every relationship was going to be. My brain was also wired towards anxiety and constantly looking <laughs> forward and trying to plan and trying to you know, figure things out and fix things and not living in the present time, the present space. It also wired me towards depression and that yeah. runs my family because you think of the past and anxiety is in the future and depression is based on past events, how things were handled, how they weren't handled. And so all of those things that happen in those very, very early stages, and we're talking very early you know, for the longest time, people assume that personality, everything was set by the time you were 10. And then it went to five years old. And then it went to three years old. And now it's in utero. The, yes. you know, all the things that are happening around you start making an imprint on you while you are still in the womb. Mm -hmm. I have a client now. She's fairly new to me. She's in her early 30s. And she and her sister were taken from her parents because of their substance abuse. Taken from her parents where she was about a year and a half. And she's like, oh, but I didn't see anything. My aunt and uncle raised us and we're totally fine. And it was very safe and it was all those things. And she's very obviously anxious. And I had to educate her on, it's, it's obvious that you're anxious and all of the safety that was created for you beyond you know, a year and a half, two years old, the imprint of chaos was still the part that your brain took on. Because we're clean plates, we're blank slates very early on. And all the energy that's happening around us, we pick up. And it becomes a part of who we are. And it affects our relationships. It affects our health. It affects how we make decisions. It affects how our brains are developed. And I don't think that enough is spoken about because I think that when we have these conversations and educate people on these topics, it takes the shame away from how you handle certain situations when you realize, wait a minute, I didn't do this to myself. I was just built this way. But you can get the strength and the confidence to work on fixing the things that aren't working the way you want them to. And I, I suppose that's, that's the challenge, isn't it? You know, especially when you're talking about things in your life before you really can remember. Mm -hmm. No, that, that's really challenging, I'm sure. It really is, but our body remembers and our brain remembers. It just doesn't know what's happening yet. Okay. And that's why it's very important as you have experiences, it's very important not to say, oh, that's no big deal. Oh, that's in the past. Our brain remembers absolutely everything that happens around us. And there are certain things that will trigger those memories. It could be as simple as a smell, a taste, a glimpse of something that's somewhat familiar or exactly the same. And your brain, as you grow older, 
something could happen to you when you were three years old. You have no idea exactly what it is that you're witnessing. But at 23, let's say you were involved in a similar act. Maybe it was something sexual. Your brain remembers and it will tie those two moments together. And then that's when repressed memories come. That's when it comes out because our brain remembers and it connects the dots. And so that's why it's a really important thing to not dismiss what kids see and what they experience and think, oh, they'll never remember. Oh, they will remember. And our body remembers too. Yeah. I mean, there's that great book, The Body Keeps the Score. And that's a great book. Yeah. You know, and this is, this is kind of where I'm going because for me around menopause, I was experiencing a whole load of symptoms. You know, I did have flashbacks to times in my life when I experienced traumatic events. I, I lost a sibling when I was 17 in a tragic motorcycle accident. And, you know, just like that, your life has changed. But prior to that, my parents had challenges. I don't really want to go into too much detail about that. But suffice it to say that it was a rocky road. She did. <laughs> had, you know, and, and then in my 30s, my firstborn son had a diagnosis of cancer. And, you know, these things that you're sort of scrabbling to keep up all the time. Yeah. Why do you say in that adrenaline, that the coping strategies that we have without almost realizing that that's what they are, you know, then something comes along like that, pulls the rug out from under you and, and you're spiraling out of control almost. And for me, the hormonal fluctuations around menopause very much pulled that rug out from under me. And so, and then I, you know, my research around menopause has been fueled by my experiences of my challenges of finding it such a difficult experience emotionally, depression, anxiety, mood swing, not sleeping, insomnia, you know, those kinds of symptoms. And this, you know, they sort of say insomnia is a symptom that is potentially exacerbated if We've got psychological disturbances. So, you know, this is something that, you know, you're kind of saying is misunderstood, not adequately researched. The kinds of symptoms that we might have, you know, got away with, we've coped, we've, we've, we've struggled, we've strategized, you know, whatever it is. And then, and then at this point in my life, that rug was, like I say, pulled out from under me. So, you know, I mean, It'd be great if we didn't get to that point, if we'd had help maybe to process these experiences sooner. But, you know, say we didn't uh, and we turned on Melody and we're coming to see you. You know, what, what are we looking at? Why are we getting these symptoms? What, what is going on? It's a mystery. Well, I think this is why it's important to have, a, have providers that see you with a holistic approach. That very few things are straightforward. Very few things are a, a straight line path. You mentioned things that happened in your childhood, in your teen years, things with your parents, you know, menopausal symptoms coming, and then what happened with your child. Some people would come to you or they, they would want to be your provider and they would just focus on your insomnia and, and give you all of these tips on sleep hygiene. Without yeah. taking into account all the other things that you that you've experienced, 
and how those can have an effect on how you're doing and how you're feeling. Insomnia is not just, oh, I can't fall asleep at night or I can't stay asleep at night. There are so many different factors that play into not being able to get good quality sleep. Menopause is a big part of that. Yes, PTSD is a big part of that too. When it comes to trauma, what happens in sleep during trauma is, and this isn't everyone, but this is a large group of people that, just a quick sidebar, on most psychological assessments, the question about quality of sleep is always present. Mm. And most, how do you sleep? Do you fall asleep and wake up? Is it hard mm. to fall asleep? Do you wake up multiple times? How many hours of continuous sleep do you get? That question, those questions are on most psychological acceptance because quality of sleep can mean so many different things. And when you're looking through a trauma lens, a symptom yeah. of trauma affecting your sleep is, I fall asleep. But after about three hours, and that's when REM sleep is happening, and that deep, deep, deep sleep, I wake up and I'm up for hours. I'll go back to sleep, maybe. But right when your brain is kicking off into that deep, deep sleep, you wake up. And what, what could be happening is, is that as we sleep, the memories of our experiences look for places to live within our mind. They look for different little nooks and crannies. As we're thinking about those experiences, if they're tough, adverse experiences, our adrenaline rises because we're thinking we've got the memories of what's going on. We're um, thinking about what occurred. Our adrenaline rises and maybe you're angry or maybe you're scared. And then you wake up. You can't re have restful sleep if your adrenaline is up. And so as you're trying to go into your deepest, deepest part of the sleep where your memory is trying to store a space, you will wake up because your brain says, nope, I don't want to think about that. Nope, that's too much. I don't want to do it. And, you know, there are, when it comes to menopause, menopause is so tricky because every single woman is different. Mm -hmm. Everyone's body chemistry is different. And with me personally, I've noticed I haven't hit full-on menopause yet. I turned 50 last month. But I've had symptoms for probably the last 15 years in different forms. I've had symptoms. I've had the irritability. I've had difficulty maintaining good quality sleep. I've had the night sweats happen. There were right. probably three years where I was consistently having night sweats, but I haven't had them for years. So it's like, where did that symptom go? I'm glad it's gone, but oh, okay. And so you just never know where you're going to get. And it can feel like whack-a-mole. You know that game where there's the little animals keep popping up and you're bonking them on the head. You're trying to attack them all. But when there's so many things coming at you, it can be really overwhelming trying to figure out what is it that, that I need to do for me. And that's why I think whenever you're going to providers, it's really important to have someone that you know is listening to you. And they're not trying to, you know, give you an intervention that they just give to everyone. It's important that they hear your history. They ask for your history, your family line, like how the women before you, what were their symptoms? What was their path? And figuring out what works best for you. And it's, it's trial and error. It can be very frustrating because you just don't know. But, it, you know, we all need to find out what is our magic formula. I think every single person has a magic formula for everything. For your makeup, for your hair care, what works. 
we, we have to figure out what is the best thing that's going to work for us. And it's not going to look the same as it does for everyone else, either in your family or your circle of friends. So it, it calls for a lot of patience to figure out what are those things that are going to be the best thing for you so that you're living at your top level. I totally agree with you. That magic formula and unique to you is is the thing, isn't it? You know, that can be quite a difficult formula to come up with when people are trying to pigeonhole you. <laughs> Absolutely. And also when people are trying to pigeonhole you, number one, and then two, when you have a history of dismissing yourself, and that can come from people from early on being dismissed. When you're not paying attention to what's going on with you, it can also be hard to pinpoint exactly what's going to help you if there are certain things that are happening that you haven't paid attention to. I have a client that I'm working with, and she doesn't have menopause symptoms, but she has had a history of ignoring her body, what her body is saying to her, and that has come out in overeating. Overeating has been the issue that she's dealt with since she was a teen. And we've been working through that. And the session that we had on Friday was her talking about how the overwhelm that she feels now that she she's flipped the switch to listening to those cues that her body is giving her. And now she's paying attention and she'd never paid attention before. And so it's a really interesting journey for her to have and sensing when she's full when she's dehydrated and needs water and noticing the, the patterns that she had previously in dismissing those cues mm. and i think that what happens like once we flip that switch and we decide i am paying attention to me it can be overwhelming with what you get but i think that you really need to go the course and know that you know you your body has been talking to you for a really long time but it's not mad at you you can catch up and you can honor you know the messages that it sends and be able to take care of yourself better than you ever had before just you know, stay confident and stay patient. Well, I love that advice, I must confess. Now, because, you know, listening to your body is something that I talk about all the time. As a movement practitioner, I teach yoga and Pilates online. And, uh, you know, movement has been the thing that I've used to help myself, you know, a lot. And, and it can really be very beneficial. Would you mind explaining a little bit more about the kinds of symptoms that might be associated with having experienced trauma in our earlier part of our lives? Sure. Anxiety, you know, constant worry about what is around the corner. And that could be worried about what could happen in the next 10 seconds or the next 10 years. Uh, flashbacks, you know, having little blips of, of memories coming to you. You're not really quite sure where they where they lie in your life, but something feels familiar and, and they just come out of nowhere. Obtrusive uh, thoughts, you know, your brain just running and racing and racing and running and running and feeling like you can't control that, the spiraling thoughts that come. Hypervigilance, you know, feeling that you have to constantly be aware of what's happening around you and you have to be prepared for something horrible. That is a really, really, really debilitating trait to, to encompass hyperarousal, feeling constantly keyed up, constantly on guard, constantly ready for something to happen to you. Low self-esteem, you know, feeling that you're not good enough, feeling unworthy of safety and security. And there are more, unfortunately, but those things 
play a part in how we see ourselves and also how we see the world. And is the world a scary place? Is it a welcoming place? Or is it a place that I need to really see and protect myself from? And people do a lot of different things. We were talking about coping mechanisms. People do so many different things to try to protect themselves from what's happening around them or what could potentially be happening around them. I know with some people that I've worked with that have experienced early sexual assault, one of the things that some people do, whether they believe it or realize it or not, is eating. They will eat, but for different reasons. One of them is food can be a comfort. It's a silent comfort. It's non-judgmental and it's readily available. It is something that you can do around people and it's something you have to do to maintain your life, to sustain life. But then some people take it in a direction which is I'm going to eat and I'm going to get bigger because then that will make me less desirable. That will make me less prone to an attack of some kind. Mm. Physical fighting, you know, angry outbursts, that type of thing where some people will, and I see it in little kids quite a bit, and we can all look back to being in school and thinking of those kids that were constantly fighting constantly fighting other kids and it and that occurs for a variety of reasons you know sometimes it's you know it is overreacting to the situation at hand and sometimes it's trying to keep people away from you because if i keep you away from you from me you can't hurt me mm-hmm. so i and i will appear scary and and i will turn you off and i will make you not want to be around me when the opposite is actually true we want to be close to people. We want relationships. We want to engage in relationship. But we've been burned so many times that we're trying to protect ourselves from that. And when it comes to depression and it comes to the anxiety, what can manifest are physical symptoms. Mm-hmm. Disease comes mm-hmm. from it. Answers can come from it. You know, as our adrenaline level is, is constantly elevated, Our body is looking for different ways to, you know, compensate for that rise in adrenaline. And so it's it's really important to know that when you experienced early trauma, you've got to work it out. Now, talk therapy can be very helpful in working those things out. But physical movement, like the work that you do, is so key because the body indeed keeps the score. Every experience that we've had finds a place in ourselves to live. And if you don't work that out, it sticks with you. And, and we now, there's been so much talk about generational traumas and things being passed down, 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 down. It's, and, and you can harbor the emotional remnants of experiences that you didn't even have because they weren't treated. And your great-grandmother, your great-great-grandfather it has been passed down in how you physically feel and then how you interact with the people around you, how you raise your children. So it's really, really key to make sure that you address the, you know, the difficult things that you experience because they will be passed on to your ancestor or to your descendants. Yeah, absolutely. The working on yourself. It's an extension of caring for yourself, you know, isn't it? I'm a work in progress. I know this. <laughs> we all are if we're lucky. Oh. Yeah, if we're lucky. There you go. I like that. 
So I, I know that you have written a book and, and this book is called Mourning the Living. And, you know, I can really relate to this because there was a time when I was younger that I had no contact with my close family. And like you were saying around holidays, birthdays, celebrations like Christmas, Mother's Day, Father's Day, things like that, really emotive occasions. Mm -hmm. and, and so I can totally understand what you're talking about when you talk about mourning the living. So, you know, tell me a little bit about your, your book, but I understand it's due for release very soon. It is, it is due for release around Mother's Day because that mother-child relationship is so important. But unfortunately, many people don't have healthy relationships with their mothers. And so I felt that that was a good time to release the book because I know for myself for a very long time, Mother's Day and Father's Day, which they are a month apart here in the States, I would get overwhelmed with a lot of different emotions before both of those holidays because I was mourning the relationships that I did not have with my parents. I didn't have a close relationship. I felt I could not trust them because they didn't protect me and my siblings. And the reason I wrote the book is to honor the relationship that I had with my sister because I had to mourn her as well. My sister is the reason why I wrote the book. The book, the full title is Mourning the Living When the Loved One You've Lost is Still Here. Oh, that's true. Sorry about that. Yeah, it's totally all right. But I think that it really punctuates how serious this is and how prevalent family estrangement has become. And it's really come out recently because of social issues, politics, race, LGBTQ family members that have felt isolated from people that they've always loved, but when there's a part of themselves that has been revealed, there's rejection. Mm -hmm. And how do you handle all those emotions for someone that you truly loved and cared for and felt respected by, and then you realize there's a different side of them that you don't agree with? What do you do? Do you adjust expectations, or do you sever the relationship altogether? Or do you create boundaries so that you can coexist? And mm. so each chapter of the book is a different relationship dynamic, starting with fathers, moving on to mothers, going on to children, partners, mm. friends. And then the last chapter is identity. It's ourselves. And that last chapter is about a variety of things. You know, one person becoming sober from having been an alcoholic for several years, one person going from living as a man to living as a woman. One person that lost 200 pounds and what that meant for her identity and how she'd always seen herself as one person. And now she's something else on the outside, but the inside mm -hmm. is still in that other body. And so it's a guide to help people navigate. Do you create boundaries? Do you adjust your expectation or do you let it go altogether? And so I have stories in there from different people who've had to navigate these relationships and try to figure out what they're going to do with the relationships. But I also have stories with clients, how I help clients figure out what is it that you're going to do with this dynamic? How are you going to handle it so you can take care of yourself in the best way? And, and so you get interventions, you get tips on how do you figure out what are you going to do? But I also discuss why it's so hard, why it's so hard 
to create trustful bonds, why it's so difficult to create boundaries with the people that are closest to us. Because I truly believe that it's important for people to understand that there are so many things about who we are that started before we were even born. And when you look at family patterns and you look at how your family does certain things, you know, we, we pay attention to, you know, certain meals and how certain dishes are cooked. We pay attention to hair color and eye color and texture of hair and height and weight. But we also have to take it a step further and look at communication patterns, relationship patterns. Those things get passed down too. And when you realize that where you come from has made an impact on how you choose a partner, it can lift a lot of shame. Mm-hmm. You can lift so much shame when you realize, oh, this is how my grandfather did it. And that's how my great-grandfather did it. And then I heard stories that that's how my great-great-grandfather handled his relationships. He was an alcoholic or it was an abusive situation. And so it helps people really take the blinders off and pay attention to what they're doing and feel empowered that they can make changes that will shift the trajectory of your entire family line if you decide to take it on. Yeah. I mean, this is work, as we said before, and having a guide, a therapist to guide you through this process, that's obviously something that you do every day with people. You know, what kind of approach are we talking about? Because obviously, you know, there this one size fits all approach that doesn't necessarily work. So, you know, how do we approach therapeutic interventions for trauma? I think building rapport is the most important part, and that has to be the first thing, is you have to make sure that you feel that you can trust the therapist that you're working with. You have to feel that they've got your best interest at heart. I think the number one way to decide if you want to work with someone or not, because every single therapist, everyone goes to different schools, everyone gets different trainings. Not everyone knows how to handle trauma appropriately. And one way to figure that out is is if you're deciding to see a therapist, are they going to dive into your trauma right from the start, right out of the gate? That is not what you want. That is inappropriate. And that's how you can tell that that therapist has not been properly trauma trained. If they immediately say, tell me about your sexual assault. Tell me about the death of your father. Like session number one, it's inappropriate. And here are the reasons why it's inappropriate. Because you don't know if you can trust that person and if they know what they're doing, and they're obviously showing that they don't know what they're doing. And here's why it's inappropriate. Because as you open the door to trauma, your memories start kicking up. The thoughts start kicking up. You will inevitably be triggered at some point. Therapy is typically one hour a week. I am not with you as you're out in the world when you're in your relationships, when you're at home with your family, when you're out on the job, when you're in the market. So you're going to get triggered. It's extremely important to know that you've got a list of different coping skills, positive, healthy coping skills that will help you calm yourself down when the triggering occurs. And if you have not established rapport and if you don't know what that person is already doing to take care of themselves and it's healthy stuff, then you're sending them out there into the world to get triggered and potentially harmed because the door, you know, that the switch has been flipped 
and they don't know how to take care of themselves when they're out in the world. And it happens all the time. Therapists have good intentions, but a lot of them don't know what they don't know. And so they will dive into a process and down a road with someone, not knowing that they could be causing more harm to the person. So you need to make sure that you've got coping skills, not just one, multiple coping mechanisms to help ease the distress that you're going to feel as the memories start coming up. Then you get to a place where you do feel comfortable talking about what's going on. How you talk about it is really important. Bookending those conversations so that there's a work up to it. And then we decide how long we're going to talk about it. And then you're working down away from it. And you're making sure that someone feels protected on both ends of the conversations. And it's not just one conversation. It's multiple conversations that are had. And you need to make sure that people that I work with, I have to make sure that they're okay. And I have to make sure that they have supports and they have resources at their fingertips. And one of the things that I always tell them is, you know, we create a coping ahead plan. Have you ever heard of coping ahead? No. Here's coping ahead. Here's an example of it. You're going to a party that a family member is hosting and his family member drives you crazy and you know that you're going to be really, really stressed out. You know it's going to be a stressed out evening. You're going to a dinner party. Mm -hmm. Coping ahead is you're making a plan before the party and then you've got a plan post-party. So let's say before the party is you decide when you're arriving, you decide who you're going to sit next to. You've decided which conversations you're willing to engage in and which ones you aren't. And then you've decided what time you're going to leave. I'm going to be here for two hours. And that is absolutely, the party starts at eight. I'm walking out of the door at 10. When the party or the event is over, and let's say in the midst of the party, you make sure that you're never one-on-one with the people that trigger you. You're never in a tight space one-on-one with those people. And let's say you've got a buddy or to your partner, you talk to or an adult child, you talk to a cousin that's your favorite cousin that knows all the dirt and they are your buddy at the party and they are by your side, they're with you. Maybe you've got a secret signal that you give to each other. This is rescue me from this conversation. After the event, you are taking a bubble bath, you're going on a walk, you're going to watch a silly movie or listen to your favorite music to wind down and wind down from the moment so that your brain isn't focused on it, locked into it, and then thinking about for the rest of the evening. So you're turning it off. You're creating bookends to those moments. That's coping ahead. So whenever you're having a difficult conversation with someone, I talk to my clients about coping ahead. What are you going to do leading up to it? What are you going to do after it? And how do you manage what's happening in the middle? And it's all boundaries. You're creating boundaries with the people that are around you. But more importantly, you're creating boundaries with yourself. And I think that's a really important thing that I don't think most people give thought to, but we're doing it all the time. But I don't think most people are giving thought to the importance of creating boundaries with yourself and not people-pleasing, which is something that a lot of women do because they're, they're so, you know, caught up in making sure that other people are okay and they're not taking care of themselves and making sure that they're okay. This is a kind of a default program, isn't it? What you were saying then makes such perfect sense. But a lot of the time, I, we congregate here. Um, and so I always 
feel that's a bit harder because it involves kicking people out. <laughs> it's, 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 but you know, why not? You know, dinner or gatherings have a beginning time. Why not have an ending time when it's all Absolutely. got to be? Absolutely. Because some people don't take the hint. I mean, you know, you could be, you know, in your pajamas, lying, being horizontal in bed, and there'll still be people asking for a piece of cake and a cup of coffee. They don't want to take the hint because it's not about you. It's all about them. So you have to be very specific yeah. so that to protect yourself in those situations. So yes, bookend it. Have an end time. Have a beginning time. And if you find that there are certain things that constantly frustrate you, you need to make communication around those things. If you're constantly upset that people don't contribute, let's say they don't contribute either with food or with cleaning, then that could be a stipulation to you hosting the party. Or I'll host the party, but you have to bring a side dish. Sure, I'll host the party, but you have to come over and help me clean the day before or do the dishes after the party. It's okay to do that. Because people will take advantage because they don't want to host the party because they know that it entails so much. And there's an appreciation when someone says, yes, I'll do it. But I think it's important to contribute. I had a family member that would love to come to everybody else's party and would walk in the door empty handed. And that is not an okay thing to do in the South. You do not. If someone's hosting, you do not walk into a house empty handed. You bring wine, you bring flowers, you bring a side dish, you contribute in some way as a thank you. And this person, I had to tell this person, no, can you go get some ice and some napkins? Oh, and maybe some rolls. And there was a lot of bitching and moaning in the beginning. And then it just was an understood thing that you have to do something. And they don't care that you go to other people's homes and you don't have to bring something. You can go to their houses. My house, I need you to contribute. I think that's fair. I think that's fair enough, Melody. So. I have listened because I'm a podcast listener as well as a podcast host. I can't read anymore. I just nod on. <laughs> My reading just goes in a bunch of different directions. Well, you yeah, have to listen to everything now. So I've heard about tea and tapping. Is, yeah. this, is this something that you could talk about? To a limited degree. It's not something that I do on a regular basis, but I have some experience in it. And so the body has meridian points. And, you know, in Eastern medicine, we talk about chakras, but we've got these different pressure points all over our bodies. And it can be really helpful to learn tapping in order to become present and handle really tough moments. And it's a matter of, you know, there's different pressure points. So above the eyes and the edges of the brows, the inner brows is a spot under, you know, on either side of the nose, there's a spot as well. And so you're literally just, you're lightly tapping with the tips of your index fingers. And there are different points that you tap and there is an order. I'm not going in order, but there's absolutely an order to it. And doing so can help just calm you and center you because our, our bodies you know, for the longest time, we as people, we did listen to our bodies. We listened to what it had to say and we paid attention and we honored that. And I think with pharmaceuticals, you know, big pharma has played a big part in us tuning that out. 
and just opting for taking a pill to serve us when we really have all the answers already within us. We can heal ourselves. Mm. We just have to seek out, you know, the different interventions that can help us, the natural ways that we can heal ourselves. But I think it's important too that, you know, when there's certain things that you want to learn, reaching out to people that they're an expert in this thing and do research and take it on, bring it on yeah. and, 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 you know, share what you learn. I'm a big fan of sharing what you learn, but tapping, there's so many, you know, advantages to tapping. There was a little boy that I worked with for a while and I'd never seen such severe trauma in a child up until that point. And this kiddo would get violent. He would get very, very, very violent, outwardly aggressive to the people around him. But he disassociated. He would disassociate. He would have these moments where you could look into his eyes and you could tell that he was not there. And he'd gone into self-preservation mode, attack mode, because he was trying to protect himself Mm -hmm. from all the moments that he wasn't protected. And I started teaching him tapping. And we would turn and he would, he would go through the motions and he would go through it. And we got to a point that whenever he would have these dissociative moments, I would teach his teachers and the school staff on what to do to help him in those moments because he would check out. And sometimes he would have these moments and I would actually be on school grounds and I would put myself in his eye line but far enough away that he knew that I wasn't a threat to him. And I would just do it. I would just start tapping so that he could see me. And it would take some time, but eventually he would pick up on it and he would start doing it too. It would bring him back to the present. Mm. And I mm. think that is what is the issue for so many people. It's that you're either in the past or you're in the future, but you're not in the present mm-hmm. moment. And tapping is a great way to get you back to the present moment. Because typically the present moment is your safe moment. It's your safe space. You're not in any immediate danger. You just have to be reminded of it. Yeah, well, it really illustrates what you're saying, which is there's a bunch of different tools that we could use and they need to be tailored to the individual. And different things speak to different people differently. I've said that before, I'm saying it again. And I agree with you 100%. Yeah. Nothing is one size fits all. And I think that, you know, if something doesn't feel right, maybe try it in a different way. And then if it, if you, if you tried multiple tactics, then move on to the next thing to see if the next thing is your thing. And that's why there's so many interventions out there because we are all so different. You know, there's different medicines for pain. I should let you know that not everybody is wired the same. So when it comes to interventions, when it comes to therapists as well, keep going until you figure out what is the for you, until you find something that feels really, really comfortable. I absolutely concur. The only thing I would say to that is that avoidance seems to be a human kind of a default strategy. Harnessing our capacity for good And at the same time, realizing that avoidance is something that we are prone to do. So, you know, this idea of always seeking the next thing, the next, the thing that's going to work, it it could be a way of avoiding the thing that actually could work as well. You know, avoidance is, is very, very tricky. I think it speaks to the power of our minds. 
our mind is built to protect us. It, it is constantly trying to protect us. And just look at the, the three trauma responses, fight, flight, or freeze. And sometimes people throw in fawn as well. Those are all ways that our mind has chosen to protect us. Avoidance is a part of that too. But we can avoid things that are obviously not good for us. But we can also avoid things that could be amazing for us. But our mind says, I don't want you to be in pain. I don't want you to experience discomfort. So you're going to, you're not going to do this and you're not going to do that. I'm going to make that very scary for you. And, and sometimes you have to override the mind. I went skydiving and I was freaked out about it, really freaked out about it, but it was such an amazing experience. Now, obviously it's jumping out of a perfectly good plane, but you know, and, and some people would say, there's no way I'm going to do that. But then you do it and you think, this is delightful. This was so amazing. But I, you know, I could say that I had the exact same experience about eating sushi for the first time. When I first ate sushi, I thought, that is disgusting. There is no way I'm going to eat something raw. And now I love it so much. I push through the avoidance of it because I wanted to experience the moment. Now I can eat Norwegian sushi. But I avoided it because it seemed like I would be uncomfortable doing it. So that's why it's really important to, whenever you're realizing that you're avoiding something, dive into that, drill into that, and ask yourself, why? What am I afraid of? Is is this truly dangerous, Mm. this thing? Is this thing truly frightening? Is this thing really uncomfortable? Or do I push through? Do I push through it? Or am I really afraid of it? Because there are a lot of times people are avoiding doing things that would change their lives for the better. Mm. And, and that's why you do sometimes you have to have a manual overdrive of what your mind is telling you to do and with the discomfort. And that's actually my word of the year. You know, people aren't really doing New Year's resolutions anymore. No. Picking your word. What is the word of the year? Okay. My word this year is uncomfortable. I am allowing myself to be uncomfortable because I find that we do so many things to push away discomfort and yet we still feel uncomfortable even because we're feeling it, which is why we're trying to push it away. So it's there no matter what. Why not just allow myself to feel uncomfortable, see what that's going to be like. And whether that's having a conversation or finishing a task or... It could be anything, going on a really long walk or trying out anything new. Just be uncomfortable for a while. Well, I love that. I think the Stoics would have something to say about that. It's character building, for one. And, And yeah, like you say, how on earth do we know the things that we could potentially love in the future if we never sit with it for long enough? So Exactly. Well, I'm on the same page, Melody. There's no doubt about this. Thank you so much for coming along and sharing your wisdom with the podcast today. I Obviously, your book, we'll keep our eyes peeled for that one. And I will share how to get in touch with you, where we can find you, and, and to read your book. So it really just remains for me to say thank you so much for coming along. It's wonderful to have met you. Thank you. And we'll say goodbye for now. 
Take care. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye. Bye.